New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today, I'm hosting Jenny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And I'd like to start in first welcoming you to the New Dimensions Cafe, Jenny. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and thank you for coming. And I want to start by reading something in what was sent to me as a kind of introduction to your book. And I thought this was so great. I loved how they described it. And having read your book, I think it really describes Mm -hmm. what one can expect in the reading and participating in this book. It says, far from a simple anti-technology screed or back-to-nature meditation, how to do nothing is an action plan for thinking outside of the narratives of efficiency and techno-determinism, provocative, timely, and utterly persuasive. So let's talk about this techno-determinism and how we're being co-opted for our attention and how it's being turned into financial gain. Yeah, you know, attention economy, it's in the subtitle of my book. I definitely talk about it um, in the way that I think, you know, it's been covered in other places, which is that there's this entire industry built on capturing and monetizing our attention, you know, on social media, um, with advertising and things like this. But but I think it's important for me in the book to sort of broaden it out from there and show that this techno-determinism, right, it, it bleeds into other facets of life, including like the ways that we imagine the self and our relationships to other people. I mean, I'm someone who teaches art typically to non-art majors at Stanford, which has, you know, uh, a strong association with tech and, and computer science. And um, so I have long been in the position of having to argue for the value of something that takes time or something that uh, requires nuance and context and can't have its value measured in a super obvious way, it kind of can't be monetized or turned into a soundbite. So um, that's kind of the, the grounds on which like I, I have been spending a lot of time and that's what this book comes out of. So tell us a little bit about your art installations. What have people responded to as far as your own art goes? Uh, Most of my art could probably be described as just shifting the frame of reference on something that might otherwise escape your notice or seem ordinary, taken for granted. Um, The best example of that is the the installation that I did at, at Recology SF, otherwise known as The Dump. Um, because there I was taking discarded objects and just researching them to the extent that it almost defamiliarizes them. Like they become surreal. They become the surreal objects that they are, really, if you look at anything for any amount of time. Um, And, you know, I've also done work with uh, satellite imagery where, for example, like I'll cut out hundreds of swimming pools and I will arrange them together in this sort of... um, tightly arranged collage that is almost like a meditation on the, again, very strange phenomenon of the swimming pool, which very quickly, as you're looking at it, you're like, this is a box in the ground of chlorinated water that we splash around in, you know, like holding one's attention on something and in a slightly uh, frame that's slightly skewed. um, It reveals all of the things about something that, that are actually quite strange and suggests that you should pay that much attention to other things as well. 
That reminds me of the work, is it Hockney, David Hockney, who did some of this also, and that you, I think you write in your book how you were doing a lecture as a docent, maybe? At, it was actually a lecture for docents. For docents, yeah, yeah. okay. And describe where yeah, it happened. Yeah. The lecture was uh, largely revolving around a piece that was at the De Young for a long time, uh, which is in the Golden Gate Park. And it was... That's in San Francisco. In San Francisco. Right. And um, it was um, basically a grid of flat screens that were all, um, you know, flush with each other. So kind of a big, almost like a meta screen, right? Um, and they were showing video that had been captured by 12 cameras that David Hockney had mounted to the side of a car and driven very slowly down a, a narrow country road in the U.K., um, and each it's sort of when you look at it, it's, it's like the zoom level maybe or the the orientation of the cameras is a little bit different. And so it's not one continuous image. It has an almost kaleidoscopic, almost like hallucinatory feeling to it. And it's a very, very slow scroll. I think it might even be slowed down more than it than how it was captured. And um, I have found videos on YouTube of, you know, like children looking at this piece and just like running back and forth and like, look at this one, look at this one. And, and you know, part of Hockney's whole thing was that uh, he would like to help you learn to look more intentionally and to look longer and to spend more time. And so the docents told me that when people would look at that piece at the De Young, they would go outside and the botanical garden is across the road and that the botanical garden looked different to them because their perception had been trained by this piece, which is suggesting that in every kind of screen in this whole installation, there is something to look at. So in this way, it's like this slow art that is capturing a different part of us. It's not that throwaway sort of mentality. It's something that enters in when we take the time. As I was reading your book uh, in the different artists, I would look up that piece of art and see, oh, yeah, like these paintings that are just look like what was the red, green, <laughs> red, green, blue, black, black, yeah. right? Describe that one. That was yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a piece by Ellsworth Kelly. I don't think I got the order of colors right, but um, that's four panels of solid, extremely solid, saturated color. If you look it up online, you will just see you know four canvases that appear to be one color. And I was familiar with that piece, but I had never seen it in person. And I, as I mentioned in the book, I was actually stopped in my tracks because I was I was at the MoMA killing time before meeting someone. So I didn't even mean to look at this piece. And I walked by it and I stopped because I think the first one was blue. When I looked at it, it was actually like vibrating in a way that must have something to do with, you know, my eye kind of trying to calibrate to this, the intensity of this blue. And uh, and I realized that every color was going to be different. And I, I you know, was like, okay, well, I have to spend a certain amount of time, like, this is blue time. Now I'm going to see what happens in the red one, you know, and someone from across the room who's not having that experience, it, it would look like I'm not looking at anything. <laughs> you know, like, why am I spending so much time in a, in front of a flat red panel? But it has to do with uh, something that's happening between me and the piece. It's not, the piece isn't some inert thing that I'm consuming. Well, there you go. So what does that have to do with social media and the internet and, and our attention economy that's always vying for our attention? I think it's just, you know, these these pieces that I'm describing are, are helping cultivate a form of attention that's almost like the exact opposite than what the, the attention economy encourages and runs on and, and produces. 
Um, so that would be, you know, a very shallow form of attention that is um, highly reactive, impatient, not seeking context, um, feeling that you have a grasp of something immediately, like uh, reading a headline and you're like, I don't even need to read the rest of that piece. Retweet, right? <laughs> you know? right, right. Um, and, uh, and also this kind of... Um, narcissism and self-assurance that I think are also cultivated by social media. So, um, you know, it's kind of anathema online to admit that you're wrong or to admit that you don't know something, right? And these other forms of attention that I'm interested in, both through art, but also, you know, my other big example is bird watching, is a form of attention that is sustained, um, at times almost ego-dissolving. Like you're paying so much attention that you're not even aware of yourself or time passing, and it's inherently open-ended and kind of never-ending. Like, I'm never going to be done watching birds, you know? And I, there are species that I find, I, I consider myself very familiar with. I still, every day, I will see one of them do something that I, I've i never seen that before. I'll see a juvenile, didn't know what a juvenile looked like of that species, you know? And I'll just, it's this kind of pleasantly unfinished project where, um my my attention is rewarded. And of course, the irony is that this activity, which is hugely re- rewarding to me, appears unproductive from a, from a determinist point of view. But it's more than that. I'm thinking when you, you, I think you write about this, that when you first started birdwatching, maybe it was Peterson's Guide, there's a place in the back that you start to figure, write oh, down the names yeah. of of the birds that you did. But then it, morphs into something else. Yeah, it does. It's uh, I have the Sibley West. Uh, that's the book that I have. Okay, but, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, I take a lot of inspiration from ecology in general in this book. And, and so, you know, it very quickly became apparent to me that you can't observe or learn about a bird without paying attention to, you know, it's called bird watching, right? But you have to pay attention to how it sounds, how it sounds at different times of the year. Where is it? What kinds of trees does it like? What kinds of things does it eat? You know, does it have symbiotic relationships with other species, right? And it's like, at a certain point, you realize you're just talking about a whole network of things that this bird is one part of. But if you really want to understand that bird, you have to understand everything around it. And I'm basically describing the exact opposite of how information is consumed online, right? Like, you know, there's almost like no impetus or no time to seek historical context, social, cultural context, right? Like, especially when something really takes off and you get something like a, a angry tweet mob, right? Um, <laughs> who's going to stand in the way of that and say, like, actually, everyone, I think this maybe is a little more complicated than we're all saying. You know, no one wants to do that. Yeah, like yeah. standing in front of a, avalanche. a big, yeah. an avalanche, right? Yeah. Okay, but at some point you had a beautiful interaction with some crows just right outside your <laughs> home, huh? Yeah, um, which I, you know, I'm proud to say I still know these crows. They are in my acknowledgments because I don't know if this book would have happened without them. But years ago, I had just learned about how crows, are, like many corvids, are. You know, I say intelligent, intelligent by human measures of intelligence, but they can recognize human faces. They um, they have been documented using tools, you know, all these kinds of things. And, um, and I was really taken with the facial recognition part. So I started leaving peanuts out on my balcony and it took a while to get their attention. But, um, you know, this was years ago and now they pretty much come every day around 10. Um, and I know that they know So they've me. trained you. 
They've trained me. Yeah, people <laughs> people are always like, oh, you've trained them? Like, no. <laughs> they trained me. We have this whole choreography where, like, I get up in the morning and I don't know where they're seeing me from, but they see me from somewhere and they appear out of nowhere. You know, <laughs> so And they've actually stopped me on the street before if I'm within a certain radius of my apartment. Um, so I always have a peanut. I actually have a peanut in my pocket right now. Oh. <laughs> Just in case. But I loved it that, that after a while you started tossing the peanuts and they would play with that. Oh, yeah. They, they like do. to do that. Yeah. What? They do like fancy dives and, you know, they're playful. I mean, there's, you know, there's tons of videos online of crows, you know, like sledding down the side of a snowy roof or rolling down a hill or, you know, um, they have personalities for sure. Um, and, and so... You know, I bring it up in the book because at um, at a certain point, you know, I'm looking at them, they're looking at me, <laughs> and I'm looking at them looking at me. And so I started thinking about, you know, what is it that they see when they look at me? And it provides this really different perspective on myself as, first of all, an animal who has a body and exists in time and space. And these are all things that I feel are stripped away from me when I am participating in the attention economy as, you know, some some sort of abstract personal brand or something that has a series of preferences and um, can be algorithmically catered to. Um, this other form of the self is so, um, it's so much more in the world, right? Like it reminds me of what I am, but also where I am and when I am. Um, and that is kind of like a, almost like a kill switch for when, when I am, you know, deep into that state, the very addictive state of um, consuming and expressing information because in a state of anxiety and, and driving this engine of the attention economy is to just simply look over and see this completely different understanding of myself and the space that I'm in and even the shape of the hill that I live on. The attention economy really runs on that kind of stimulating our fear response and anxiety. And so we do need an antidote. And I know that one of the things that you advise is to know your bioregion. And I know years ago when we did interviews with uh, Gary Snyder and we asked him, well, what do you think the most important thing we can do for the environment? And he says, know your bioregion. Mm -hmm. And that that's also your idea that that that's what's important for us. And it will help us to detach ourselves from and to resist this attention economy. Yeah. And, and not just, you know, anxiety, but I think it also addresses um, loneliness, which is another thing that I think drives the attention economy. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I feel like our, our sort of narcissism is stoked by social media, but ironically, we're kind of going there for a sense of connection with other people, which of course we think we're getting, but, but we actually end up, I feel lonelier at the, at the end of the day. Um, and knowing about one's bioregion also means knowing one's place in it and, and having the feeling of recognition, right? Like when I go hiking, you know, in the Bay Area, which I've lived in my whole life, like I, I, I'm having encounters with like, oh, there's the thimbleberry, there's, there's the huckleberry, there's the manzanita, you know, and I feel like at home. Um, and I feel grounded, like in a place that um, has been very therapeutic for me in the past few years. And um, one of the terms that I mentioned in the book that I came across in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, amazing book, um, is species loneliness, which is this um, description of, of this, you know, specifically human kind of sadness or longing um, and alienation from other species. And that that's something that I think I've had my whole life and just didn't realize it and didn't have a name for it. And it's something that I only now feel like I'm starting to overcome. 
Oh, we can just talk about so much more. We just <laughs> kind of lightly touched a, a few of the little subjects covered in your book, How to Do Nothing. And it's really more than how to do nothing. It's <laughs> yeah. doing something, but in a certain way. I just want to thank you so much, Jenny, for being on the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, JennyOdell.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe and invite you Please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.